Welcome to the Desert Voices Podcast, guiding you toward collaborative power and reassembling of your faith. Have you left places of toxic theology and are asking the question, what now? Are you looking to flourish in your spirituality, but don't have the time to find and engage liberating resources? We got you. We save you time and energy on this podcast by helping you thrive in your relationship with the divine self and others. I am Tommy Allgood, a friend of the pod, and I'm excited to be with you as we introduce the moments ahead. This podcast is made possible by listeners like you. Would you consider a tax-deductible gift or supporting us on Patreon? Information is on our website at desertvoices.com. And check us out on all the socials at desertvoices underscore. It's also wicked helpful when you subscribe to the email newsletter and podcast. Give us a five-star review if we meet those expectations for you and share episodes that touch your heart. And now here are your guys, Shalene Kendrick and Ryan Lambros. Let's get curious. Let's get bold. Tom, you, you've gone through some of the darkest moments, the, you know, like the dark night of the soul as you process through it. But obviously there was enough conviction in your heart that says like, I can't get away from this idea of love and relationship. I can't get away from this idea. So obviously it's impacted your life to where it's worth it. It's, it's, you know, as you're still wrestling through stuff, that's encouraging for me as a, as a young Mm. father, as a young professional in, in life. Can you just talk through, I mean, just the kind of the difference that an open and relational perspective has in just like the the professional life, leadership, management, mm-hmm. working a job. Um, I mean, I know like you've, you've contributed and helped edited a book called Open a Relational Leadership. For your the listeners, go buy that book. It's a bunch of different people writing how open and relational perspectives impact various different parts of leadership. And it's incredible. Um, can you kind of talk through just what that's done for you in your own life as you've led, as you've been a, a professional, as you carry on in life? Because obviously it's, it's something that has permeated throughout your life. Yeah. Before, before you jump in, I want to, Ryan, okay. one of the questions that you said earlier before we were recording, I loved this question, but the way that you phrased it, Ryan, was you said, why would it matter to believe in an open and relational God versus believing in a God who's all powerful, controlling and sovereign? Yeah, there's so many ways it matters. I can't cover them all, but let me, let me give a few of them. All right. If you think God is open, relational and loving and never controlling, never tries to coerce or force things. And if you think the apostle Paul is right, that we ought to imitate this God, then the way you parent, the way you lead, the way you live your life is going to be a life of, you use the word nonviolent, I'll say non-forceful. It doesn't mean you don't try to influence things. It doesn't mean you're passive and you sit back and you say, que sera, sera, whatever happens, it doesn't really matter. No, you're still involved in the mix. You're still making an influence, but you're not trying to force people. You're not trying to coerce them because that's not the way God functions. And I think most of us have had experiences with leaders who have had a more authoritative kind of 
understanding of what it means to elite, to be a leader. And that is, you know, it's my way or the highway. Uh, I call the shots. You obey. Your contribution is only what I allow. And an open relational God doesn't lead that way. And so open relational uh, people ought not to lead that way as well. We ought to be open, collaborative, relational, to use that word again bringing in insights, aware that people really have influence and can say and add things we could never say or add. It doesn't mean that, you know, everyone is exactly equal because sometimes people are smarter, more creative, have more experience, whatever. But it does mean that every voice matters. And um, that's, I, I could just keep going and going. So I'm going to just stop, let you guys make comments, and then I'll come back with more. How does well, that sound? <laughs> I love every voice matters. That That is like music to my ears. I have grown mm. up for so long where my voice as a woman didn't matter in the mm. church, in leadership. So I'm sorry. Um, thank you. I received that. I'm sorry too. But I, I love, I'd like to ask this way. So if Ryan and I are applying for a job, how, because people, so we find so much comfort in saying God is in control. There's such comfort there, right? <laughs> because there's safety, because there's certainty. So again, anyone using the phrase, God is in control, you are participating, in my opinion, in the idolatry of certainty. And so when, let's just take the professional life. Like you're in a job you don't love and you're wanting to switch jobs. And so you're applying for a bunch of jobs and you're getting rejected left and right. And there's such comfort to say, God is in control. What would the open and relational thought process, how would that speak into applying for different jobs and being rejected or not finding a job that is going to work for you or that yeah. you can even, so many people are having a hard time even getting hired right now. Right. So I'd love to talk right. about moving away from the idolatry of God is in control. How does this help? How does this bring healing and comfort to my life as I, as I, as a professional apply for jobs? Yeah. First of all, let me say kind of the uh, negative and then I'll come to the positive. The negative is that it says that when you don't get the job, it wasn't because God ordained it or made it happen, that God has got some sort of plan and your lack of employment is really a part of some God's good pleasure. So we eliminate that process. But now let's see what it means positive. Positively, it means that you have a role to play at trying to find a job. So you can't sit on your ass. You have to actually get out and do something. And that God is working not only in your life and in other lives, but, and here's one of the aspects we don't oftentimes emphasize, it's more than just you and God in the universe. There are other people, other factors, other forces that also have a play, also have a role. And sometimes those forces and factors are what keep people from getting a job. Those forces and factors might be legit or illegit. They might be helpful or harmful, but there are other forces and factors at play, not just God, not just you. And so as I think about the kind of scenario you set up here uh, in terms of seeking employment, I think I have to take into account that there are other people looking for employment. There's a certain amount of uh, things people want to spend their money on and not. Uh, all these kind of factors go into play. Does that help at all? No, that's super helpful. I, correct me if I'm wrong, but I, because this is the way I've wrestled with within a, a truly relational world. To use the example, if I'm applying for a job, so many times they work a lot with like young college students or young professionals, and they, they, you know, they apply to their, they're talking this huge game of this is my dream job, this is my everything, and then they don't get it, and mm. they literally make the excuse. God must not have wanted me to get that job. 
Mm-hmm. And I, I kind of sit with them and I challenge, I push back and they go, well, why do you immediately jump to that? It seems like that you're just using God as an excuse for something. And what I love about relational theology is that it's never just God. It's never just my fault or something along those lines. It's It allows us to have a really healthy view of responsibility to go, hey, you didn't get that job. Okay, so so what did we do to in preparation for it? Did we do yeah. everything that we felt we can? Okay. Um, was there other circumstances that other people involved that that it didn't? Okay, does that even necessarily mean that it's a hard and fast no? Is there still passion? And, and it's not that it's some certain, this is, oh, then this is what it really means. But it's, it creates and fosters a healthy responsibility for everyone involved, which ultimately creates, I think, healthy relationships and a healthier life. I like that. Yeah. I think that makes a lot of sense. I suspect many people, when they don't get a job and they say, well, it must not have been God's plan or God didn't want me to get that job. They're probably looking for an explanation for what just happened. And I think that's totally natural. I think we ought to look for explanations in the world. But the problem is they have in the back of their mind, a default view of God's power. And that default view says that God has the kind of power to get the job for you if God wants that or prevent you from getting it. God alone ultimately makes the calls the shots of the universe. And you're not getting the job meant that God didn't want you to. And open a relational thought is actually asking you to give an explanation that really makes more sense of the way we all, all live our lives. And that is, we all have choices. We all have influence. We all have power, to use Shailene's word. And not only just us, but there are other creatures, forces, and factors. Sometimes a pandemic comes along and just screws our lives up. Nobody freely did that. We have to just deal with it. And that affects the job, the employment situation. So all these forces and factors at play, including God, but not a controlling God, mean that we, when we give explanations for why we did or didn't get a job, we can't just blame or give credit to one thing or one factor. It's not just all on our shoulders. It's not just all on God. It's just not all on the weather. There's all kinds of things that we have to take into account if we're going to give an explanation that really makes sense. Hmm. I like that. You keep saying makes sense. And I, I would <laughs> even say not just makes sense, but I would say is more holistic. Like to mm. me, the spiritual quest is a search for wholeness, um, mm-hmm. both wholeness with a WH, but wholeness, like holistic, H-O-L. Mm-hmm. Like I want to be a holistic person, right? Not, not only do I want something to make sense, but I also want, um, I desire to live into wholeness and fullness. And I, that's the default God, the, the conservative God I grew up with already told me that I'm broken and I'm separated from God, right? So it comes from this, the quest for spirituality in that paradigm is not a search for wholeness, but rather escape. I have to escape my brokenness, get out of earth and go to heaven. And the here within this open and relational theology, or for me as a mystic, um, no, I get to live into, I'm searching for a way to talk about my experiences, be my human experiences in a way that's holistic to my yep. soul and healing to my soul and comforting to my soul. So that I like I say, it makes sense. And I go, yes, it makes sense. But more than that, it's healing. And it brings me a sense of comfort and wholeness. And and that's why I've appreciated this worldview in such a way that you don't have to have all the answers. 
But I love how you said in your book, you have to pick a box, right? Like you don't have an option not to pick a box. So the, how did you say it? It was so good. I'm going to scroll to there, but you're like, so the best way is to pick the healthiest box that you can pick, right? Like you have, you're going to, you're human. You are going to search for ultimate meaning. There's no way for you not to. That's part of the human experience. So pick, pick a quest, pick a path that will bring you the most amount of wholeness and comfort and empathy and connection to yourself the force that we call God and to all the world. And that is what this umbrella of theology has. That's the impact this umbrella has had in my life. Cool. And I, that's very cool. I love that. Um, yeah. Okay. So we want to end with this open and relational theology. We talked about professionalism, but we'd also Ryan brought up earlier as we were prepping for this, the idea of open and relational parenting for those of us that are parenting, whether that's an actual parent, but I know like my closest friend is, you know, she, in some ways, parents, her nieces and nephews. And like, so this conversation is not just for actual parents that with kids that live in your home, but a way to parent the children of the world, because we're all responsible for the children of the world. So how does this view inform our parenting as opposed yeah. to a God who's in control? It's, it's a really complex question. I've got a few ideas to throw out at you, but I want to say right up front, I'm still working on this. So I'm open to getting your input and anybody else's input to try to make sense of it all. One of the big issues when I think about parenting, uh, like God, we might say, is uh, the difference between us having localized bodies and God not having a body. (laughs) So I think it's perfectly legitimate for when uh, a two-year-old needs to take a nap and the two-year-old doesn't want to go to a nap for the parent to pick up the child and put the two-year-old in the crib for a nap. But God doesn't have arms and legs to pick us up. So there's going to be some disanalogies there. The question then is going to become, what kind of influence are we capable of and how can that influence be loving? And sometimes that influence is going to mean picking up two-year-olds against their will and putting them in a crib for a nap. But the way it typically works is that the older a child gets, the less we use any kind of, um, I'll call it bodily impact upon them. So you don't pick up your 18-year-old and put her in bed for a nap, right? If she doesn't want to take a nap, you try to figure out ways to reason, to give uh, evidence and arguments for why taking a nap is a bad illustration. But you get the idea. Maybe your 18-year-old, I don't know, wants to uh, drink and you're worried about her getting drunk and and, uh, coming home late and having problems or whatever. So you have to use some kind of reasoning. You have to persuade your 18-year-old in ways that you don't for your two-year-old. So what becomes complex is that path between, you know, the infant to the 18-year-old and how you, you interact with that person in such a way that's not going to be coercive and yet also is really influential. And um, I don't pretend to have all the answers on how to do that. I know that with my three daughters who are now all in their 20s, uh, you know, I do a lot of creative thinking on how I want to influence them. But um, it's a whole lot different than when they were two. So maybe that's just a, an opening foray into answering that. What do you guys think about this? No, I, I mean, I have, so I have a seven-year-old boy and a 10-year-old boy. Mm-hmm. So life is a little weird. Life's a little crazy. Yeah. But I, I haven't even, I just kind of have dove into the exact moments that they are. But looking at it, like you just explained, of kind of creating a pathway or a, a journey 
and guiding your child in a journey in an open and relational way as far as like the whole the whole journey like that's that's something that i as you said i'm going oh my goodness i have not even i haven't <laughs> even looked at that macro i'm just i'm like how can i try to lead you know relationally in this moment which i mean is is necessary too but something that at least has impacted me is parenting through and with an open and relational um way is that i as the parent give up and need to give up power and it becomes and and there's so much pushback especially in conservative evangelicalism of that you actually allow your child a seven to ten year old to co-habitate and like co-create no you're the parent you you tell them what's what to do and what not to do (laughs) and and it's totally changed it and it's harder because yeah it's easier i'm a a grown man and I can tell my young boy, no, you're going to do this as opposed to, hey, Maverick and my youngest son's name is Maverick and he lives up to that name. Like, hey, what what, what do you think we should do here? What is yeah. this? And then actually him going, no, I think this is the best. Okay, well, I'm going to work with you on that. I wouldn't agree that that's the best. Well, let's figure this out together. Mm-hmm. And, and then also suffer with him when he makes that consequence. Like, that's hard as a parent to give up power, but that's just one yeah. thing uh, for, for parenting from an open relational perspective that is life-changing. That's beautifully put. Yeah. I was thinking of that in terms of like my daughters, my, uh, my youngest daughter is what, 23 now. And this week she and I have been corresponding about, she wants, she needs to get a, a new apartment. So she's trying to figure out her best options. And I'm trying to encourage her, you know, I've got limited knowledge on things. And so I'm giving her suggestions. You might say I'm calling her like God calls her, given the options I understand. I think there's more options out there than I know, but I'm making suggestions, proposals to her. And those proposals are often, I'm not, she's going to make the choice. I mean, I might have to have some influence. She might need some money from me for a down payment or something. When, When they're younger though, like right now, my uh, almost three-year-old granddaughter is living at our house because her parents are in transition to another house. I think of it in terms of, in many situations, laying out options for her, giving her choices, beginning the path of moving her to making the difficult choices by giving her smaller choices right now, instead of me deciding everything, what she's going to do. I hope that that helps her to feel like she's a real agent whose life and decisions not only matter, but influence me and I can even learn from her sometimes. So that's kind of just probably building on and saying again, what you already said, Ryan, I like that. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think what you're, what you're describing is this idea of kind of surrendering this top down power structure Mm -hmm. um, and really walking into, and I think, I think it's, I guess it's not easier as they're older, but like a collaborative power, it's probably, it probably has just as much (laughs) um, frustration and difficulty as when they're younger. It's just, it looks different. But when we commit to that, we really are saying, hey, we believe in co-creating. We believe in full human agency, that, that there's not that unhealthy codependence. There's not, um, there's not a, we're just independent and that's it. It's, hey, we're independent individuals, yes, 
but we are netted together in interdependence that we are um, and we're showing that to our kids that what you do matters, not just for you, but for the family, for the parents, for our brothers and sisters. And that is, uh, they might not get it right cognitively fully, but we know that experience often and over time literally changes the brain and helps the neuroplasticity of a child to develop those pathways to where they see that as norm and they see that as right. healthy. And so that when they get into applying for a job in leadership, things like that, their, their, their default is, you know, co-creative, uh, relational, open, um, you know, even just the simple thing of I do this with my boys, they, I go, here's the options. Whatever you choose has consequences, good and potentially bad. Yeah. And we're going to do that and they do that and it has a negative consequence they go hey because the future is open that you get the opportunity to do the next right thing to borrow the brilliant theology of frozen two like <laughs> you get to do the next right thing which is a relational and open way to parent um, right. that you're not using the past to hang that over um, and that they truly can think wow the future is truly open and that is just I'm trying to get them to to think that way. They don't always yeah, do it. Yeah, that's good. I like that a lot. Two quick responses. One, Bonnie Rambob, who you know, uh, Ryan, in our doctoral program, she's doing her dissertation on God as a parent and parenting. So uh, maybe sometime later this year, you might want to have her on and ask these kinds of questions. She'll give you better answers than I have. Secondly, um, some people will say, well... You know, God is like a parent. There's lots of biblical examples of that. We're God's children. And what they have in mind, and they'll even say we're adopted into God's family, because that's also a biblical idea. What they'll have in mind is what most people today in the U.S., uh, at least, do when they adopt. They adopt infants. And they think of God in us as like a parent with a one- or two-year-old. But in biblical times, in the New Testament especially, when adoptions occurred, they usually occurred with parents of teenagers or even 20-somethings. And those folks have a whole lot more agency, a whole lot more relational freedom. Uh, so if we imagine God as a parent and us as God's children, if we imagine us not as one-year-olds whom God has to you know, practically do most of the work, if we imagine us as teenagers or 20-somethings who have real agency, who can collaborate well with God or not, I think we have a healthier way to think of God as parent and us as children. Oh my gosh, I love that. That's beautiful. And that, that is interesting too, the idea of adoption because all humankind is adopted in, right? Like, right. and or the idea that, and again, it's metaphor, right? So we're all adopted in, and also we're all, all humankind are God's biological children, right? And so <laughs> you can play with it one yeah. way or the other. Like there's all yeah. sorts of metaphor and ways. This is why I love um, walking out of a literalist interpretation of scripture mm. and into um, a metaphoric and mythopoetic way to talk about scripture because there's so many different, there's never just one way, right? Like I can talk about myself as God's adopted daughter and I can talk about myself as God's biological daughter. And so all these things, I just love that. Yeah, so good, one of the good. things I want to say as we talk about and wrap this up, but I do really appreciate that to Ryan's point, how God is giving up power, but it's, it's, it's more importantly to talk about what kind of power, right? So God's giving up toxic, hierarchical, controlling power because God has 
created all of us to step into. And the essence of God is collaborative, healing, empathetic, compassionate power. It's a different. So when Ryan said, I'm giving up power again, my Enneagram made is like, oh, hell no, I'm not giving up power. And partly because as a, as a girl in the evangelical church, I was taught to participate in my own oppression, right? I was taught to be subject to the men in my life. And that was called God's natural order or God's plan or God's will. And so when I hear a man say, give up power, my response is, oh, fuck no, am I doing that? (laughs) Yeah. Um, But what I am interested in is giving up toxic power because Mm -hmm. toxic power is hurtful, psychologically and societally hurtful. And so I've loved this idea of Jesus is unquestionably powerful. So the question is, what kind of power did Jesus yield and how do we follow that way? Because we were never called to be powerless. And it was only, it was in my life, it has always been the men who love to talk about being powerless while they also held all said power. (laughs) And I'm like, oh my gosh. So the question is, what kind of power are we giving up and what kind of power are we stepping into? And uh, I've, I love, to me, that is why I've loved open and relational theology is about co-creating with the God of the universe who is nonviolent, radically inclusive and filled with truly unconditional love for humankind Mm -hmm. and all creation. And it speaks to agency. Again, as a woman, agency is very important to me because I was taught not to have any or that my agency was less than or unimportant within a misogynistic patriarchal paradigm. And so I I appreciate, I have found such liberation and joy within this paradigm. And, you know, as always, we reserve the right to change our mind. I might in 10 years be like, oh my gosh, open and relational theology is the stupidest theology I've ever (laughs) It's not, it's not, Shaleen. It's not. Don't worry. It's It'll not, be it's forever. Not. I don't know. I'm but kidding. I want anyone listening to know I reserve the right to change my mind and contradict everything I just said. Um, yeah. Ryan, you Can asked I, this question. Oh, go ahead. Sorry. I, I wanted to go nerdy just for a little bit here and I talk about, nerdy. okay, talk about something within the open and relational family in which there's a difference of opinion. Okay. And it has to do with this power thing. Some people in the open and relational family, think that God has all the power, but voluntarily gives it at least most of the time or shares it such that we and others creatures have power because God gave it to us. But God did that because God just wanted to for some reason or another. Others think this giving of power is something God has to do. is isn't even a choice on God's part. Mm-hmm. I think it's because of God's love that God necessarily gives power to others. So the power you have, Shailene, is not power that God just decided to give you, but could take it away this afternoon. It's really your power because God has to give it, given God's nature of love. Hmm. And that way of thinking about power has huge implications, not only for the problem of evil, understanding elections, understanding all kinds of power dynamics and marriages and partnerships, but it also has big implications for emphasizing what I think is an intuition that you have, Shailene, and that is you are somebody. You have value. You exert agency in the world, and that's a part of what it means to be you. Mm-hmm. And open relational theology emphasizes that in a couple of different ways. The way I like says God must give you that power. <laughs> oh, I love that. I love that. God must. And I, because that creating something that's powerless to me is not loving because I was in a church where I had no power. And that No matter how many times they said I was loved, I never felt loved in that way because I never saw myself reflected in leadership. Like, and so I was always, when love is subordinate or subject, it's, you can call it love all you want, but really it's dominance. Let's just be honest. 
And so I appreciate this idea of God must share power because that's what love is. And if God is love, because God is love, then that is a part of love is the collaborative power. You don't make something that you love powerless. Right. Right. That's dominance. And I just, I appreciate, I didn't know that in the open relational community. I appreciate that. Yeah. Well, Thomas, as we wrap up, where can our listeners find you and how can we come alongside of you? How can we co-create with you and connect with you? Well, for me personally, you can find me a lot of places online, but let me encourage your listeners to go to the Center for Open and Relational Theology online, which is the letter C, the number four, and then ORT.com. Because on that website, there's all kinds of resources and information about what it means to be open and relational and the various forms and varieties. So um, I think I would point uh, your listeners to that website as a good way to, to go deeper. Hmm, I love that. And for any of you listening, if you want to join the doctoral program with Ryan and I, come yeah. be a doctorate student with us. Come be Dr. Ryan, Dr. Shalene. Uh, and or there's master's programs available as well. And also for those of you that are lifelong learners, come and just learn. Like come in, audit the course and just you, to me, what I've loved about this place that you've created, Tom, is that you can come and be a part of it in many different ways, whether you're looking right. for a degree or just an experience, a community. It, it's a beautiful way to engage in um, curiosity. And I know that a lot, I've gotten a ton of people who have emailed me going, where do you get, where do you learn more about this? And this is a lot of why I wanted to have you on. You go to Tom, go to Tom. Go to the Center for Open and Relational Theology. That's where you learn more about the goodness of God. I also need to say thanks to you, Shailene. Your name appears on the back cover of my new book on open relational theology as one of the podcasters who endorsed the book. And if you go to Amazon and you look under the description part of the book, you'll see your name there as well. So thanks for your one word endorsement of my new book on open relational theology. Well, it is a radical book. It's deeply rooted in love and goodness and the kindness of God. And it's a God that I've longed to worship my whole life. As I walk away from angry God images, I long to worship a gentle God. Mm. And there's such power in gentleness. And it took me a long time. It has taken me, continues to take me a long time because toxic power makes me feel safe. Mm. And so it's been beautiful to go, I get to be gentle because the God that I worship is gentle. And there's a different kind of power there. Awesome. It's it's beautiful. Your work is beautiful. We're so grateful, Thanks. Tom. Like Thanks. I yeah. have so appreciated. I love this conversation, but I just, it's, it's beautiful. Your work is so meaningful and it helps, you know, the quest of spirituality is to give language to our experiences. And your work has really helped give me a lot of language that I'm like, oh. I, I have a gut instinct, but I don't have the, the words to talk about how yeah. I have shifted. Well, I'm happy to hear that. I mean, that's part of what I it's part of what I think of myself as a literary artist. I'm trying mm-hmm. to come up with language that helps me and others make sense of these ideas, intuitions, uh, feelings. Um, so thanks for saying that, Shailene. And thanks to both of you for, for making this possible. Oh, yeah. it's going to be fun. We'll have lots you, of podcasts. Tom. Cool. Oh, yeah. <laughs> awesome. Great job, Tom. Thank you. Thanks, Tom. All right. Thank you for the opportunity. See you guys later. Bye. See ya. Hello, hello. So let's talk about, do you have any questions off the top of your head that we would want to leave our audience with? Yeah, I think that, I think we, we, we even started it, like he talked about 
how an open relational perspective changes our idea of power. And then we ended uh, talking about power. So I feel like that's a theme here. Yeah, um, it is. And, 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 and I think that a challenge to our listeners would just be, is your definition of or um, understanding of power more influenced by culture and society and or your religious upbringing or even current religious ideology? Or is it, to be, is it really truly defined through the way of love and through the way of, um, if you're more leaning towards a Judeo-Christian perspective, through the way of Jesus and self-emptying and um, healthy power? Like where really is your definition coming from? Because that's what we oftentimes will project onto this being we call God. Yeah. Um, so I think that's a huge because where whatever you however you define power is going to then play out in your experiences of leadership, parenting, marriage, all of those. And to me, it's not a surprise because Christianity married the empire in the fourth century, and we've yet to get divorced. It's not a surprise to me that so that we view God the way we view the power of the empire, high control, hierarchical, and that, like again, controlling and hierarchy because that is the power of the empire. So it's not a surprise that the dominant view of the power for God within Christianity is a hierarchical, high control God, because we have, we've made them synonymous, right? And the way of Jesus is the way of collaborative power, where everyone has a voice, the way of empathy and the way of, it's a different type of power. And I just think it's interesting how much Christianity the way we know it will vault at that. Because as soon as you ask these questions, you are threatening their said power. You're threatening the power of the empire. There's a reason Jesus was murdered and it's not because God needed a sacrifice. It's because he threatened the power of the empire. Yep. And it's, I mean, we joke all the time. You love the word power because it's, it means something healthy. It means it's a power with, I hate the word power. Uh, because it still stuck on me the nasty parts of a hierarchical, controlling, abusive power. So I don't even like to say power. Mm-hmm. I don't even like that word. And it's it's very similar to when someone says, oh, I don't believe in God. Well, what God are you saying you believe in? Oh, I don't believe in this God who sends everybody to hell and da 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 No, I don't believe in that God either. And that's very similar to this power de- definition of, I hate the word power. And you would say, well, what do you mean by power? Well, power yeah. meaning over and dictator and, you know, imposing. Oh, I don't believe in that power either. Yeah. I think it's really important how and where we get our definition from when it comes to power. Um, yes. Is it purely relational and is it open? Yes. And here's how you know you have the empire. Once you start putting people on trial for heresy, once you start doing that, that's how you know you have moved into the realm of power over others. You're in the realm of empire. You are you have left the world of Christ, the Christ consciousness, yeah. the Jesus, yeah. brown-skinned immigrant man that we follow. Once you start putting people on trial for heresy or, you know, excommunicating people, you have you are now living in the world of the empire. Correct. And Unhealthy, wrong power most shows up in the areas where we are most privileged. Mm, amen. Yeah, that's like That's good. where that's, when your privilege is exposed, you will grasp for more power. And that's why Jesus comes as a, essentially a peasant. 
as a Middle Eastern brown outcast peasant. And the people in power were like, oh, hell no, and felt threatened and said, no, you don't get to define power. And Jesus goes, well, this is what power, power is, love is power. Power is love. Go replace 1 Corinthians 13, wherever it says love with power, and then see what, if that matches the right definition of what you think you have. Hmm. Like it's, it's game changing. Power is patience. Power is kind. Oh, that's beautiful. Right. I never thought of that. Yeah. Like it's, mm-hmm. it's, or go and replace wherever in the gospels, it's like Jesus and replace Jesus' name with power and see if that like yeah. fits your definition of power. Like, oh my goodness. You know, mm-hmm. like power says, blessed are the peacekeepers. Like, oh wait, what? You know? Yeah. Oh my gosh. I love that. I never thought of doing that, right? That's awesome. Yeah. So there you go. It helps me fall back in love with the Bible again. Right. Oh yeah. Yep. Yeah, to go. It's yeah. Oh, thank you, Brad Jerzak. Brad Jerzak helped me see those things. Oh, that's cool. I love it. Well, this was a beautiful conversation. And so we're going to leave you with some questions to spark your curiosity. And the first one, Ryan mentioned this a bit earlier, but how does this conversation influence or change your ideas of power? Yeah, I think that's, I think that's huge. I think, you know, same question, kind of different end. How does this conversation or how did this conversation spark curiosity when it comes to your idea of the future? I think it's an American thing. It's probably, I mean, I think it's a humanity thing and it's a humankind thing, but especially in America, we are so consumed about the future. Uh, 401k, retirements, you know, whatever, leaving it for the future. So I'd be curious to to hear or, or, or just challenge our listeners that how did this conversation impact your understanding or your perspective or your view of the future? Mm, I love that. That's good. And our final question is this. How much time do you spend thinking about how your theology or your theory impacts your actual life and the life of those around you? It doesn't help you to live an esoteric theory. That theory has to serve the people. People don't serve theory. And so my question is, how does this theology serve you or impact you? And and or whatever theology you're living with right now, what is the lived impact of the theology or theory that you currently have and how does that sit with you? Yeah. If theology doesn't hit the streets, it's not worth it. Yeah. Amen. That's good. Well, friends, we care for you. You are part of this conversation. Connect with us on Instagram, Twitter, come hang out with us, give us your questions, send us some emails. We would love to hear what your thoughts are on this conversation. Yeah. We love you. In the spirit of transformation, our team at Desert Voices reserves the right to evolve, grow, change our minds, and make many, many mistakes along the way. What topics do you want to talk about? Let us know. Let's collaborate and co-create a more just, equitable, and beautiful world together. For episode transcriptions, courses, and coaching opportunities, head over to our website, desertvoices.com, and subscribe to our email. To support us and join the movement, it is helpful to five-star review this podcast, subscribe, and follow our work on social media and share episodes that resonate with you. Until then, go be free and flourish. <laughs>